Well, as we continue our series uh, this summer um, on what makes a healthy church, the last couple of weeks we've heard some great messages uh, by uh, Nathan and by Jeff on biblical theology and how important correct biblical theology is. Today we're going to look at uh, another aspect of theology that is vitally important because our eternal souls are at stake. Everyone in this room, in the sound of my voice, either you have truly believed the true gospel that we'll talk about, or you have never heard the gospel, or you're relying on a gospel that is not true. So if you have relied on a gospel that's not true, if you've never accepted Christ, you've never heard the gospel, this morning, to put it bluntly, you're in danger of spending eternity in hell separated from God. This morning we want to talk about the center point of the Christian faith and the church as individuals and as part of this local assembly by asking first the age-old question that every religion and every religious person has asked since the beginning of time. How can man, mankind, the human race, boys and girls, men and women, be made right before God? As I said, throughout history, this question, how can man be made right before God, has been twisted and tweaked to almost sound the same but has a different implication, just as the Satan, as Satan tempted Eve and Adam in the garden, and how they were beguiled, the Bible says, and they sinned against God. That question, how can man be made right before God, has been twisted into this, what must man do to be right before God? The result of that tweaking of that question has severe catastrophic implications. But before we go much further into that, we need to know why does man need to be made right before God? Well, because of the theology that our church holds to is the holiness of God. God is holy and sinful man cannot obtain access to God. It's not that God is angry And his anger consumes sinful people because God is so holy. It's his holiness that consumes sin and does away with it. So man, in his unregenerated self, in his state, cannot approach God with anything that he does because God is holy. 2 Samuel 2.2 says this, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. In other words, no one exists in God's category of being, but he himself. Psalms 111 says this, holy and awesome is his name. Because we have sinner, because we are sinners, because we have no righteousness of our own, no holiness, we have no hope whatsoever of obtaining heaven. Some of you may be going, is this so? We're going to look at God's word. Actually, Isaiah 64, 6 tells us this, that our righteousness is as filthy rags. What we do to try to exalt ourselves into a state of righteousness or holiness actually makes God sick. 
It, it disgusts him. Just like a filthy rag. Think of a filthy rag that you may use to wash dishes with. It smells horrible. It's got other stuff on it, and you wash your dishes with it. It's pretty disgusting. Our righteousness before God and what we try to do to obtain righteousness, that's exactly what it is. So being, being righteous, unrighteous before God, whoever, puts us in that excuse me, situation where we have no hope outside of ourselves. And if we have nothing that's going to take care of that problem, we'll spend an eternity in hell. You may say, well, I'm not perfect. I'm a pretty good person. I don't, you know, I don't do bad things. I'm kind of good. But don't take my word for it. Paul said this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. And this is all of us. This is us who have been born again as well. We fall into the same category. That's why we need to be renewed in what the gospel really is. You know, Paul said in Romans 12, it says, Be renewed by, well, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What he talked about that is the gospel. Even as Christians, we need to be reminded of the power of the gospel every day for us to be able to live the life that we need to live. He says this in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Puts us in a precarious situation, to say the least. So back to those two questions. The first question, how can man be made right before a holy God? The second question, what must man do to be right before a holy God? There's a big difference between those two questions. Sounds a lot like, like we said earlier, what happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. The question, how can man be made right before God, implies a humble attitude. What can be done for man to get him out of this horrible fate that awaits him? The other question, what must man do to be right before God, arrogantly implies that somehow man has the ability to make himself righteous or do enough good works to appease God's wrath against sinners. So when the question is phrased this way, what must man do? It leaves the door wide open for man to create his own righteousness. What he is capable of accomplishing then becomes that which can put him in right standing before God and into heaven. But the quest for the answer to this question, how can man be made right before God, has led to many false religions, and to many religious people who still have no hope in God. And this is based on false theology of what God is like and what man is like. It's a theology that takes away from God's holiness and gives man credit for goodness that he does not possess, nor will he ever possess that is good enough to get you into the gates of heaven. To emphasize this point, I want to read an expert excerpt out of this book called The Gospel. We have these books actually back on our bookshelf and I think in the bookstore. And this is part of the series that we're preaching on this summer of what makes a healthy church. 
And in this, there's a quote from another book that is written by a man by the name of Greg Gilbert in his book, What is the Gospel? And I'm going to read this because I think it does. It, it sheds light on what a lot of us think about God and the gospel because it's what we've been taught or either we are unwilling to submit to His Lordship and His holiness. And we want to say, well, God must be angry. That's why He's going to send people to hell. But no, God is holy. That's why people get sent to hell because they refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So listen to this excerpt. It says, let me introduce you to God with a lowercase g. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the ones he talks about when you really get him going, were a long time ago, before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though, and God, poor fellow, just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now, he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things Every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness you read about sometimes in his old books. You know, having the earth swallow up people, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. All that seems to have faded in his old age. Now, he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do regardless is all right by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know, the best thing about him, though, he doesn't judge me ever for anything. Oh, sure, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better more loving, less selfish, and all that. But he's realistic. He knows I'm human, and nobody's perfect. And I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know. And I wouldn't have him any other way. Okay, we can go in now. And don't worry, we don't have to stay long. Really, he's grateful for any time that he can get. Kind of hits to the point, does it not? So the search for this answer, how can I be made right before God or appease God, has taken many down a path That's wide and leads to destruction. The Bible tells us instead of acknowledging God 
Man created his own gods out of stone, out of wood, and prayed to them, brought them offerings, sacrificed things to them. Man also chose to worship what God had created instead of the Creator Himself. Man has dismissed the idea of God altogether, replacing God with human philosophy, reason, logic, and even science, the very thing that God Himself created. Just as damning to mankind, though, is that man has added to and taken away from the true answer to this question. Proclaiming a man-centered, unbiblically thought-out theology of God. Unfortunately, many people have bought into this answer and have been taught this all their lives. And unfortunately, this leaves them in the same position, enemies with God. They're either unable to or unwilling to accept the true answer that comes from this book right here. No, Paul said, look, we're not following things that are just made up. We're not following fables and myths of God. These things that Paul talked about, the things that we proclaim the gospel, are actual truths that happen. But for the people who refuse to believe this gospel, this has become their gospel right here. Be nice to others. Don't steal. Don't lie. Give money to the church. Go to church sometimes. Don't kill anybody, especially not a preacher. If you do these things because God loves you and he wants the very best for you, you should be okay. Oh, and try to read your Bible as well because God likes that. But you know, folks, the answer is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is that? The gospel is that which, is a, which allows mankind to be reconciled with a holy God. By faith alone, through Christ's substitutionary sacrifice alone. Not of works, lest any man should boast. The gospel is good news. The gospel is a free gift. Full of hope for those who believe. For through it, what we deserve, which is hell, we don't get. And what we don't deserve, which is a right standing before God in heaven... That's what we get. That is grace and mercy. Romans 6.23 tells us this, For the wages of sin is death. So sin requires death. Breaking of the law requires somebody has got to die. Blood has got to be spilled. But the gospel is more than just black words on white paper. It's more than just a creed that we memorize. It's more than just a prayer that we say. The gospel is actual, actually historical events that have been verified and proven to be true. Events in history that were planned before even history existed is what we're talking about. Before the very foundation of the world. Peter said this in Peter 1.20, 1 Peter. says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, for us who through him, through Christ, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
So this morning, I invite you to open up your Bibles. That was my introduction, kind of long. The rest should go quickly. And actually, what everybody said up here is they're being baptized. The songs that we sang is every, what Jeff said is everything that we're going to talk about this morning. You could say, well, we could go home now. Well, I'm going to do it, the same thing, but I'll do it with an accent just to make it a little different. <laughs> so open up with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. I believe this is the most powerful and clear understanding of what the true gospel is. And then uh, my hope today is that as, after we are done here, that you will be refreshed in the gospel, that as you read through your Bible, is that you, as you fellowship with one another, everything that you see and do will be the gospel. Every time you open up God's Word and you read something, you see the gospel in it. That's the power of the gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. This will be our text this morning. And in his first letter to the believers in Corinth, the Apostle Paul reminds the hearers of the gospel. He's talking to saved people, all right? He's reminding them of what they have accepted. In verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which ye received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The same thing that saved Paul, saved these people, saved you and I. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, just what God had planned before the foundations of the world. And that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, a very public event, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James... Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul in this text gives us the gospel, the three mainstains of what the gospel is, Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. Without any of these, there's no gospel. And if these are not totally and absolutely true, there's no gospel, no good news for sinners. And if there is no gospel, then we might as well just... Shut her down right now, lock the doors, and go home because all this means nothing. But if these three pillars, these three mainstays of the gospel are true, then we have no hope if we reject the truth of the gospel. If we reject any of these three, his death, his burial, his resurrection, or even try to add to it or take away, you're in danger of being swept into hell and eternally separated from God because you're not trusting in the full, true, complete gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 speaks of it this way. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Without the gospel, there's only hell. There's no heaven. 
The concern that Christians stay grounded in the true gospel was of grave importance to the Apostle Paul. As you read through his epistles, it's all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus Christ. Because Paul knew the people he spoke to are like us. We are like sheep. We go astray. We look over here and say, well, this is probably better. And we tend to go to people that will teach us what we want to hear, what's palatable, and what does not disturb our conscience. In 2 Corinthians 11, I have sincere concern that Christians are getting swept away by false teachers. You know, in Ephesians, uh, Paul even said to the leaders at the church, he said, when I go, false teachers are going to come in and pervert the gospel. It will come out of some of you. Good men with good intentions, bad things happen. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. What he's saying in that part right there, he says, I'm afraid if someone comes in and dupes you and says there's another way, you'll sit there like a knot on a log and accept it. And live with it. That happens to a lot of people. There's a lot of religious people who have been duped. And they're no more saved than the hinge on this glasses that I have. And they'll split hell wide open believing in a false gospel. Because it was preached or taught to them in some sort of way that just made them feel good about themselves. So let's look deeper at what the gospel really is then. Christ's death is burial and his resurrection. Let's look at Christ's death. And this goes back to correct theology. Correct theology affirms the holiness of God. We talked about that earlier. The Bible teaches us that no flesh can be righteous before a holy God. An act of sin, no matter the level, no matter if it's a tiny white lie, okay, that's sin. And the law demands punishment for sin, and that punishment is death. Paul said that in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. Forgiveness of sin, which we all like, requires something. The Bible teaches it that it requires a blood atonement, a sacrifice. Something has to die and blood has to be spilt for sins to be forgiven. Hebrews 9 says it this way, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Whoa, that, Pete, I don't know if I like that or not. I don't like, I don't know if I like that. It sounds like an angry God. No, God is holy. And sin is costly. The writer of Hebrews reflects back to the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus as the writer is talking about the blood of bulls and goats and what the high priest had to do goes back to the Levitical sacrifices that God gave the children of Israel. As you read through the Old Testament, God's desire was to dwell among His people. But God couldn't dwell among His people within the tabernacle because of their sin. Because they were ungodly, God is holy. So Moses was given by God the Levitical sacrifices. These sacrifices that Nathan taught about his Old Testament class, and, and actually, a lot of people 
We don't read the Old Testament, so we miss out a lot in regards to what Christ has come to do in regards to his sacrificial atoning death on the cross. So the way it worked, the tabernacle back in Moses' day when they were in the wilderness was a bloody place. Blood was sprinkled on everything, every instrument that was used in the tabernacle. The priests themselves had to offer sacrifices, blood sprinkled on them. Then the worshiper to be forgiven of sins. And God gave the Old Testament sacrificial laws so that the Old Testament saint could maintain a relationship with God. But if you know anything about those sacrifices, those things were done day in and day out. It never stopped because people don't stop sinning. So what would happen is as a worshiper, I come and I bring my sacrifice. When I bring it, it's got to be inspected to make sure that it is spotless and that it is perfect for the sacrifice for God to accept it. Then, as the worshiper, as you bring that, the priest does not shed the blood of the animal. The worshiper did. So picture yourself coming up with a lamb that's been inspected, perfect, spotless, because it wasn't, you go to the back of the line and get another one that was, you come up, then you have to kill that animal. It sounds graphic, but it's what happened. That throat of that animal would be slit. Blood's pouring out everywhere. Then you'd have to cut the animal sacrifice up. Then the priests would lay it on the altar. A bloody, bloody, bloody area. Everything was covered with blood. The animal was a substitute for the worshiper because man cannot be righteous before God. So this innocent animal, unwilling, but dragged in and offered up to appease the wrath of God because of sin. Now keep that in mind as we talk about what happened to Christ on the cross because we did that, our sin, that's us. We killed Christ because of our sin. These sacrifices in the Old Testament, however, did not provide a full and complete atonement for sin. They were symbolic of a perfect, more excellent sacrifice to come. Like I said, this was a day-in and day-out event. It never ceased. Which illustrated, one, the sinfulness of man. It also illustrated the inflexibility of judgment under the law. Like Jeff preached a while back, if you want to be under the law, be under the law. The law is a hard taskmaster. Master. The other thing it illustrated is the extreme high cost of atonement. Millions upon millions of animals were slaughtered to be, make man approachable to God because of their sin. It also illustrated the justice and mercy of God. Justice because sin has to pay a price and mercy that he provided a sacrificial system to allow man to maintain relationship with God. And also, it showed really the significance, a more excellent, a need for a more excellent sacrifice for the atonement of sin. Because Hebrews tells us that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So in the fullness of time, the Bible tells us, 
God sent his son to be the perfect substitutional sacrifice for us. For all the sin that we committed, all the sin that we will commit even as believers. He came to take our place to appease the righteous wrath of God for our sin. John wrote in 1 John, he said, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation speaks of appeasement. The Bible tells us that it pleased God to crush his son. It pleased God for Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. That's true love. But true love came out of justice, mercy, and grace. That word propitiation signifies that divine judgment has been satisfied. Satisfying the wrath of God against my sin and your sin. So, you may say, well, Pete, how do you know for sure that it was Jesus Christ who was the perfect sacrifice? Well, it's evidence in God's Word. It's also evidenced in historical documents. He was examined and he was pronounced as the spotless, perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. One, his birth tells of this. He was born of a virgin, unscathed by the sin of men, because in his veins flowed the blood of his Father, God Almighty. Second, the testimony of John the Baptist. And you're familiar with that. In two places, John the Baptist twice said, That's the Lamb of God. And we're all familiar with this one. In John 1, verse 39, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Also, you may not have thought about this, but Pilate's testimony of Christ's perfection proves from a non-Jewish, Gentile, non-believer that Christ was the perfect sacrifice. You remember when Pilate was examining Christ, he came out into the presence of the chief priest And the people that were involved with the crucifixion of Christ, and we're all familiar with this, and it's super awesome. He says, I find no guilt. The King James renders it this way. I find no fault in this man. Pilate, in front of the chief priests, the ones who were religious, says, this is the spotless, perfect Lamb of God, guys. What are you doing? Jesus, the willing perfect sacrifice that would appease the wrath of God towards sinners. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Next is Christ's burial. We may look at Christ's burial as being insignificant in regards to the gospel, but it's very significant. Considering the fact of Jesus' burial, we look at it this. In John 19, 41 through 42, John writes this. In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Christ's burial in that tomb testifies that he really died. That confirms that God does punish sin by death. And that Christ actually died for us. The Roman soldiers who crucified Christ were experts in death. 
so expert that their life even depended on that. If they let somebody off the cross who were not dead, they themselves could be crucified. They themselves could be killed. So they made sure that Christ was dead. So him being put in that tomb also solidifies and and it debunks the myth that Jesus faked his death. Also, which is exciting, the account of Jesus' burial is a portrait of the power of the gospel because Jesus is the gospel. You know, when we talk about the gospel, we think about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but Christ is the gospel. He is the gospel. And so it shows the power of the gospel. When they put Jesus in the grave, what did they do? They They put a guard around it trying to keep the gospel in the grave. It reminds me of 500 years ago when Martin Luther and the Reformers, right? There were people trying to snuff the gospel out. But the power of the gospel is such that the power of the gospel will come out. And that proves why the burial is so important. The old Puritan preacher, Matthew Henry, and commentator, pointed out this about Jesus' burial. It says, In the Garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power. And now in the garden, they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over. In a garden, Christ began His passion. And from a garden, He would rise and begin His exaltation. Next, Christ's resurrection. The resurrection confirmed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. All through the gospel, Jesus said, I am my Father in one. He equated himself with God because he was God. That's why the Jews wanted to kill him so bad. His resurrection confirmed his claims because only the creator of life can bring somebody back from the dead. Romans chapter 1 3 through 4, Paul writes this concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection means that his sacrificial death on the cross was sufficient, and therefore our sins can be forgiven. In verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul argues, he said, If Christ is not risen from the dead, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. But praise God, His resurrection took care of that. When Jesus rose again on the third day, it was the public announcement that God was fully satisfied with the sacrificial death of His Son. And what that meant and what that means for us is now we have the ability to be made right before God because of right. The righteousness that Christ gives us. Jesus' resurrection means that death is defeated once and all. His resurrection ensures and guarantees our resurrection. As you can see, the gospel changed everything. But listen to this. The gospel, though, has never changed. The gospel has always been His death, His burial, and His resurrection. According to the Word of God, the gospel... Jesus' substitutional death, his burial, and his resurrection are the only means why by sinful man can be righteous before God. Now, the gospel truly divides. Think about it. it. The true gospel divides people. 
It's uncomfortable. It's rigid. It's inflexible. And it's non-negotiable. The gospel is the only answer to the question, how can man be made right before God? A a quote from uh, a preacher by the name of Peter Crockwell says this, The preaching of the gospel guards and exalts the glory of God. The gospel yields all glory to God alone and condemns the glory, wisdom, and righteousness of all men. No man, Martin Luther reminds us, can attribute too much glory, goodness, grace, mercy, and kindness unto God in Christ. Now, if a message this great, is that wonderful? And I'm getting ready to close, so if, if you just woke up, you go, well, we only have about three or four minutes left. This message is super great. And if it's the defining center of our churches, and if it's the defining center of what we are as Christians, why do we see so many bad things in our churches today? And when I say churches, that's, that's us. That's individuals because we make up the church. Things like strife, bickering, a lack of unity, dislike for others. Where's the saving power of the gospel in our lives, church? In our church. A church with the truth of the gospel in its theology can produce the opposite of the gospel in its practice because we fail to remember what the gospel is. As we're reminded of the gospel and its power, it opens up and reveals to us Christ. It reveals to us as we read, it's like watching a movie for the second time. You go, oh, I see now why he said that at the beginning of the movie because it plays in at the end of the movie. When you really refresh yourself with the gospel, Christian, it changes the way you treat other people that's in this room. People who are not Christians, they see a joy. They see something different about you if it's real. You can fake it for a little bit, but after a while, the gospel is just too heavy of a burden to fake. And... You will be found out. If not on this earth, as you stand before God, you will be found out. In conclusion, to Christians, those who have believed the gospel and truly believed the gospel as Paul preached, as Jesus preached, as the Word of God preaches, the gospel demands that we live it publicly. Just as the events that made the gospel up were public events and seen in the open... There's no such thing as a secret gospel. It's like the man who has the cure for cancer. He doesn't want to keep that to himself. He wants to share that with others. Some of us are embarrassed of the gospel. But this is what Paul said. And if you're a believer, this this is for you too. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The gospel is what sweeps people into the kingdom of heaven. Not good works, not giving money to the church, not even being kind to people. But as a Christian, the gospel demands that we live in a certain way. The gospel commands that we live the gospel in love as believers. Non-believers and those who have truly been saved When they get around other people who are truly believers of the gospel, they see a difference. A difference that we display, not just sitting here on Sunday morning, 
but it's what we display outside of the church building. Because you're going to live, I'm going to live what I really believe. If I really don't believe it, I'm not going to live that way. That's why it's so important, believers, that we refresh ourselves in the gospel of what it really is because you start seeing it in everything that's in God's word. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You see, folks, the complete gospel, the full gospel, the true gospel that has the power to save a man, woman, boy, and girl is completely about Jesus. The gospel is Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And as we end, for those of you who perhaps are skeptical of the gospel, perhaps you have fallen into the trap of logic, reasoning, and science. And you maybe have not really heard the gospel before. Maybe this is the first day you've heard what the gospel really is. Or those of you who are trusting in the gospel, but also trusting in something else added to the gospel. I have something I want you to read to you. It's not a book. It's not a quote. It's out of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open there as we close. In Romans chapter 10... Verses 8 through 17. So today, folks, you have heard the gospel. The Bible says, There's a point on a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. All of us will give an account of what we did with the gospel that we heard today. Believers, we'll give an account of how we live the gospel. Non-believers, you will give an account for why you did not accept the gospel, the true gospel. Romans 10, verses 8 through 17. The word is near you. or But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith in the gospel comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ.